0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We're going to talk about food insecurity today, and we're going to focus, after I give you a broad... Overview of food insecurity and why we should care and why it has anything to do with health, we're going to focus on SNAP as a model intervention uh, for one way in which we address health outside of the hospital walls without generally really realizing that we're doing it. So um, I do not have any conflicts of interest. Um, we're going to talk about food insecurity and health, we're going to talk about the impact of SNAP on health and then if there's time and there's interest in the room, we'll talk about some of the recent and proposed changes to the SNAP program because I think it's important to understand that these political initiatives have real implications in the healthcare setting even when they come under the, the term food or under agriculture or um, any of the other ways that we generally conceptualize them that isn't health so we know that diet is a cornerstone of care for the most common chronic diseases in the United States and really I would argue that the some of the diseases on this list are really the epidemics of our day, which I say all the time. But maybe on you know March thirteenth, twenty twenty, the epidemic of our day is coronavirus. But until this week, we everybody would say that diabetes and obesity were really the epidemics of our day. And in terms of. Um, uh, morbidity and mortality diabetes and obesity are really driving enormous changes in uh, in the overall health of the United States and the world now the the problem with diet being a cornerstone of care is that we don't actually do most of our diet decision-making in an exam room within a hospital or a clinic. Really, no matter what I say, as a clinician, you're going to leave as a patient my exam room, and you're going to enter a world, no matter what I tell you about what you should be eating and how you should be eating it, you'll leave my exam room, and this is where you'll go to. Because this is where everybody goes to. This is what the food system looks like in the United States. It is populated with cheap calories that have no nutrients uh, and that give us an overwhelming number uh, of choices that are heavily marketed in beautiful colors and designed to make us want to pick them up and purchase them at a very low, low price. And so the question really for us as clinicians is how can we make a meaningful difference in the clinic when we see our patients so infrequently and for so little time and then they go out into a world where the food system uh, doesn't support any of the eating habits that we might suggest to you uh, as clinicians are good for you. and so. One of the elements of this food system that is not working well um, is the element of affordability. And I'm gonna start with a couple of definitions. The the most important definition for today is the word food insecurity. Uh, And we define food insecurity in distinction to food security, which the USDA defines as access by all people at all times to enough food for an active, healthy life. And food insecurity is a household level because people share the food budget and decision-making around what to eat as a household, a household-level economic and social condition of limited or uncertain access to adequate food. Now, in the United States, this is different than the way it is conceptualized globally. In the United States, food insecurity is... Measured as an economic measure. It is about affordability. Do you have enough money for food or enough other resources like SNAP benefits or other benefits for food? And so, really, we're talking about affordability here. And if you can believe it, one in nine U.S. households are food insecure. It's about 11% of the U.S. population, 11% of all households in the United States. Now, this includes about 6.8% of households with low food security. And in these households, the quality of food has diminished in order to meet a tight food budget. But in general, the quantity hasn't diminished. And we'll go into this in much more depth in a few minutes. And then another 4.3% of U.S. households in which both the quantity, the quality of food has to diminish and the quantity has to diminish in order to meet a severely constrained food budget. And so... One in nine U.S. households, about 11.1%, but when we look across different populations, there is enormous variability in food insecurity rates, and these are some of the most most important risk factors for food insecurity. About 17% of all households with children in the U.S. are food insecure, particularly if they those households are headed by a single parent. If that woman, if that um, head of household is a single mother, your risk of being food insecure as a child is one in three, which is enormous. If your income is low, um, below 185% of the federal poverty level, and we use that 185% level generally because uh, above 185%, people are generally not eligible for any federal nutrition benefits. Um, And then um, people living in black or Latino households are at much higher risk of food insecurity because the structures and systems in place uh, for decades have not supported food security. If you are not yet convinced that this is a common condition in the U.S., when we look back in time to when the SNAP program was called the Food Stamps Program and we just ask people about history of exposure to food stamps or or SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, about 50% of all children – Uh, And 90% of black children in the US will report having been on food stamps at some point during their childhood. And among adults, about 50% will be on food stamps at some point between the ages of 20 and 65. So this is a very common experience. The um, typical duration of um, being on food stamps or SNAP is very brief, about three months. Um, But when you look overall at people's life trajectories, a very, very common experience. So I defined for you a few minutes ago food insecurity, and I want to spend a minute to make a distinction between food insecurity and hunger. The word hunger is defined as a physical sensation, the discomfort that you feel or the unease that you feel when you haven't had access to adequate food. And this is a sensation that everybody feels. Now, the literature has really steered away entirely from using the word hunger and using the word food insecurity for a couple of reasons because of a couple of advantages. One is that many people who, by your yours and my definition, you would probably say is going hungry, many of those people do not any longer feel the physical sensation of hunger. That sensation has become blunted because of years or decades of exposure to not having adequate food to eat. And the second reason is because it isn't actually hunger that is the problem in the context of the development of obesity and diabetes and other chronic diseases. It is instead the coping strategies that people employ in order to avoid the physical sensation of hunger. And these, are, these coping strategies are the same things that you would probably think about doing if I said to you, you have $4.90 to spend on food per day. So that's a typical dollar value of a SNAP benefit, a food stamps benefit in the United States is about $4.90 per day. If that were all that you had to spend on food, what would you do? Well, you would probably do the same things that many other people do. You might eat low-cost foods that tend to be nutrient-poor, energy-dense. You might eat very highly filling foods that you know are going to fill you up and keep you full until the next day or the next opportunity you have to eat. You may concentrate dietary intake on a few foods that are very rewarding, comforting for you, but again, that fill you up. You may avoid food waste among yourself or your children and many people and um, uh, have experienced this as a child in the context of food insecurity and often in the, not in the context of food insecurity and then binging when food is available in anticipation of an episode of food inadequacy in the future. And we know that these are highly adaptive in the short term because they keep you from going hungry and keep you from losing weight. But when these coping strategies are sustained for years or decades or a lifetime, which is a typical pattern of food insecurity in the United States. We know that they will predispose you to obesity and diabetes and other diet-sensitive chronic diseases. And then once you're chronically ill, it makes it that much more challenging to manage your illness because you still don't have access to the healthy foods you need. This is the real problem that we're talking about here. Now, I will say those are the advantages of talking about food insecurity and not hunger. The disadvantage is that the term blunts our emotional response to this need. And so we can have all of these academic conversations about food insecurity without sometimes ever really internalizing the fact that 11.1 percent of households in the United States aren't sure that they're going to have enough money to feed everyone in their family at the end of the month. So, there are advantages and disadvantages here. When we take all of this together, uh, this is the way in which we think about food insecurity impacting health. If you start at the top of the slide here, you live in a food insecure household. You engage these coping strategies, and we've talked a little bit about the nutritional strategies. We'll talk about some of the other ones in a few minutes. Those coping strategies predispose you to poor physical and mental health. Once you have those diseases, your healthcare expenditures go up. Because having a disease is expensive in the United States, out of pocket healthcare expenditures and trips to hospitals and clinics make it more challenging to maintain steady employment. With decreased employment comes de- decreased income, which puts increased pressure on your household budget, which makes it more likely that you're going to live in a food insecure household. Now, the important thing about this is that it's a circle, which means if we follow it to its logical conclusion, it's entirely possible that food insecurity causes poor physical and mental health, but it's also possible, and I've not yet proven to you that it's not true, that it's just poor health in the United States predisposes people to food insecurity. And that may also be the case, although I hope to prove to you that it's that the circle that it really is a circle, that it's running in both directions, and that people can get caught up in a cycle of food insecurity and um, and poor health in a way that that builds on each other. So let's start by talking about nutrition. This is a complicated graph, but let me just take you through the important parts of this. What you see along the bottom axis is how much it costs for uh, for one calorie, let's say, of food, and what you see here is the density of food. What we're essentially saying here is if I gave you $4.90 to spend on food today and you were an economically rational person and you were academically motivated and you went to the academic literature or uh, the library or Google Scholar to try to figure out how to spend those $4.90 and you were going to do it in a way that made sure that you got your 1,800 or 2,000 calories per day, then what you would do as again an economically rational person, is you would spend that $4.90 on oil, shortening, margarine, sugar, bread, pasta, and rice. And then we wonder about associations in the U.S. between low income and obesity, low income and diabetes. And you see all of these lighter shaded squares and triangles here. These are all of our fruits and vegetables, which calorie for calorie are way more expensive Uh, Than our more energy-dense foods. This graph here shows you in the black line the um, consumer price index for food, which basically is the average price of an average market of goods for the average consumer in the United States. You can see it's been rising a little bit over the last 30, 40 years. We have more recent data, but it looks the same. But what you can see is... um, exerting the upward pressure on this CPI for food in the black black line is our fresh fruits and vegetables. These are becoming relatively more expensive over time, while the things that are holding the CPI for food down in these red and yellow lines here are our carbonated drinks, or in most cases, our sugar-sweetened beverages uh, and our non-alcoholic beverages. So fruits and vegetables are getting more expensive over time, This graph shows you the percentage of your total household budget that you're likely to be spending on food uh, depending on what income quintile you are in now. So wealthy households in the US spend about 5% of their total household income on food The lowest income quintile in the U.S. spends 30% of their entire household budget on food. And the reason why this is important is because it gives very little opportunity to make substitutions within the food budget towards more expensive but healthier items. As a matter of fact, a couple of years ago, in a very well-done study, these researchers documented that the diet recommended by the USDA, the least expensive diet considered nutritionist, the thrifty food plan diet, would require a low-income family to spend to 70% of their entire household food budget on fruits and vegetables. And the challenge with that, again, is it's healthy, yes, but it doesn't actually give you enough calories to maintain your, your energy needs. And if you increase your dietary potassium, potassium coming substantially from, fresh fruits, from fruits and vegetables, to meet the USDA dietary guidelines would add an additional $380 to the average consumer's annual food costs. So what can you do about that? Invest in saturated fat and sugar. Now I just want to quickly add here that when you talk to a typical low-income consumer about the cost of food, it, it quickly becomes apparent that the cost of food isn't only about the amount of money that you're putting down in the cashier aisle. The cost of food is, is conceptualized very broadly to include how much time it takes for preparation, healthy food generally taking a lot more time for preparation and for eating because it's less processed. You have to have equipment for storage and and preparation, which means you have to have paid your utility bills and have a refrigerator and a stove or an oven. Uh, It takes time and money to travel to a full-service grocery store, particularly if you live in a low-income neighborhood where grocery stores uh, are not frequently located. Um, There are very inexpensive varieties of fruits and vegetables and this allows the USDA model meal plans to often have beautifully constructed meal plans that will last you for a couple of days. But to get variety, for example, to invest in um, fruits other than an apple... If your kids want a peach or your kids want strawberries or you want to have a kiwi, those are much more expensive. You're stuck with the lowest, the, the least amount of variety. Uh, it costs more money to get high-quality food. And then, particularly in households with children, the fear of food waste. So if you can think back um, to um, an era in which you had young kids in your house, I might say to you as a clinician, get some broccoli. Your kids will love it. The... The risk of buying some broccoli and having nobody at the table eat it, and frankly, the first time you feed your kids broccoli, no one will love it. it the risk is the risk is high because when that food goes in the trash, if it's a dollar, two dollars, or three dollars worth of broccoli, and you're feeding the whole household on four dollars and ninety cents per person per day, that has a significant economic implication. Okay, so the evolution of research on health and food insecurity has gone very quickly because as we recognized that there was a problem, there, became a, there was a lot of momentum to try to understand whether food insecurity and health were related, whether the problem was substantial enough that we needed to do something about it, and then to try to figure out what we could do to help blunt the health impacts of food insecurity. And so I'm going to start um, where I started before, which is thinking about uh, whether food insecurity is related to physical and mental health. And I'm going to tell you, um, this may not be extraordinarily satisfying, but I'm going to tell you that if you look for an association between food insecurity and any disease, you will find it. And part of the challenge with that as an academic is that... um, We have this problem again of which came first, the food insecurity and the poor health. And in many cases, you might look at this and you might say, well, it's just much more likely that once people are ill, it puts a lot of pressure on their food budget and they're more likely to become food insecure. And so we have spent a lot of time trying to tease out whether it's true that food insecurity, through all of these coping strategies, really does cause poor health. And quite recently, we had, I think, the first definitive study that shows that the arrow does, in fact, go in both directions. This was um, actually carried out in um, Canada, this study, but um, it's been replicated to some extent in the U.S. and the charitable food system and the federal nutrition system is very similar in Canada as it is in the U.S. Essentially, what they did is they asked households whether they were food insecure and in Ontario or Quebec and one of those provinces I forget i 'm sorry um, they then you they then uh, looked in people's medical records for the next eleven years to see whether they developed diabetes eleven up to 11 years after they asked them if they lived in a food insecure household. And you see in this red line, the risk of developing diabetes if you are food secure. And you see in this blue line, your risk of developing diabetes if you are food insecure. And so in this case, the food insecurity came first. And you might say, well, that's poverty, it's low income, it's all the things that go along with that. But even after adjusting for all of these other elements, people living in food insecure households had more than twice the risk of developing diabetes. Uh, And so I'm not going to give you a lot more information. I'm just going to leave it at that to say that food insecurity and health are tightly related. And the problem is a big one. And I I don't generally talk in costs here because I don't think that the reason why we address food insecurity and hunger in the United States is because it's expensive. Um, However, cost does give us a common language in which to talk about food insecurity and health in one sentence it gets the social service sector and the healthcare sector aligned and it helps us to understand the scope of the problem so i'm going to use some cost data to try to articulate to you how big the problem is in this study we done in the united states We use again, a population-based survey, so representative of everybody in the U.S. We asked them if their household was food-secure or food-insecure, and then we followed them for the next two years to see every single health care-related expenditure they made, every time they went to the doctor and how much it cost them, every time they picked up a prescription at the pharmacy, every time they went to the emergency room. If you lived in a food insecure household, your annual health care expenditures were $1,863 more than if you lived in a food secure household if you made these populations otherwise look totally similar. okay? So they have very similar health needs, but if they lived in a food insecure household, they had $1,863 per year more on health care expenditures. And if you multiply that, 1863, by the number of food insecure people in the United States, you get a number that is enormous, $77.5 billion with a B, additional health care expenditures annually associated with food insecurity. That's a big number. Um, and I, I want you to hold that $1,863 in your head because then you might be asking yourself, okay, can we do anything to pull that number down? Or if we do something to address food insecurity in the U.S., does the differential in healthcare costs between these two populations get smaller? And I'll make you wait for that. It's, that's the suspense of the evening. All right, so... Can an intervention help address the problem? So I'm going to start by saying to you that there are a host of different responses to food insecurity in the U.S. And I I didn't put a slide in here, but I'll, I'll just tell it to you. We think of four primary responses to food insecurity in the U.S., The first two happen without us even knowing it because they happen within the household. The first one is shifting money around within your household budget. This is generally what people do first because it doesn't require anybody else to know what's going on. It's, I'm not going to um, pay the utility bill because I need to buy food. I'm not gonna refill my prescription because I need to buy food. I'm gonna wait until next month to buy my winter coat to buy food. That's the first thing. The second thing people do is call on their own social support network. They send their kids to grandma's house to eat. They ask for a $100 loan for from a friend or neighbor. Now, generally, these friends and neighbors in low-income communities are also at risk of food insecurity and hunger, but but people rely on each other. And then once you exhaust those resources, there are two other places you can go. One is the federal nutrition programs, like SNAP, And the other is to the charitable food system, which is our network of food banks and food pantries and home-delivered meals uh, and soup kitchens, which um, are otherwise called free dining rooms. I'm not going to talk so much about those right now. We can talk about them in the Q&A. I do a lot of work in that setting too. But I'm going to talk about SNAP today because it is by far the largest of all of these programs, and we have a lot of administrative data that allows us to get closer to understanding the impact of interventions to address food insecurity and how they may impact health. So SNAP was formerly called Food Stamps. It was rolled out across the United States in 1974. It became a national program in 1974 and switched its name to SNAP because of the stigma associated with the term Food Stamps uh, in the last couple of decades. In California, the SNAP program is called CalFresh benefits are given to you now not on an actual coupon like the food stamps program, but on an electronic benefits transfer card that looks like a credit card that you can take to any SNAP authorized retailer to use on any foods that are not prepared and intended to be eaten in the grocery store. So you can't buy a sandwich or a rotisserie chicken, but you can buy any other foods, not alcohol, not toilet paper, not baby diapers, but any food. It is one of the largest anti-poverty programs in the U.S. by the number of people that it helps pull out of poverty. In fact, SNAP and the Earned Income Tax Credit are the the two largest anti-poverty programs in the U.S., The earned income tax credit, obviously, you're only eligible for if you have earned income. And so SNAP really is, for many populations in the U.S., by far, because of the elimination of many other safety net programs, it is the primary safety net program in the U.S. now for many, many populations. Importantly, when we talk about SNAP and the politics of SNAP, this is kind of small to see, but what you see in this big blue part of the pie here, is the percentage of the farm bill that is dedicated the, the farm bill budget that goes towards the federal nutrition programs so it's it's more than seventy five percent of the farm bill and of that big blue piece the vast majority of it is snap there are a ton of other federal nutrition programs the national school lunch program the school breakfast program the emergency food assistance program that brings commodities to food banks but snap is by far the greatest of these and I highlight this because um, it's really important when we talk about changes to the snap program because there' is, if you have as your goal to reduce farm bill appropriations, the amount of money in the farm bill, there is basically nowhere to go except for the federal nutrition programs because they're such a huge part of this pie. And because of that, federal nutrition programs are always a source of debate and, and always under attack. So one of the reasons that we study SNAP as the primary intervention to understand food security and how supporting food security can lead to better health outcomes is because it is very well documented across decades of work now that food insecurity very uh, that SNAP very effectively reduces food insecurity in fact it pulls about 20 to 30% of households Out of food insecurity, so it allows them to cross the threshold from food insecurity to food security. It's particularly effective among households with children, but 54% of people on SNAP are still food insecure. So how can that be? There's a couple reasons. One, it's because the most food-insecure households are the most likely to enroll in SNAP, but the benefits aren't enough to pull these very severely food-insecure households across the threshold to being food-secure. So they're better off, they're less food-insecure than they would otherwise be, but they're they're still not comfortable that they have enough money for food. Um, Okay. So, it is very clear that uh, SNAP helps families afford adequate food, and this, this graph just shows you what happens to households after they enroll in SNAP, and you can see that after six months of being on SNAP, households are much less likely to be food insecure, the percent of households in which children were food insecure declines rather, uh, a rather large amount, and then the percentage of households with very low food security also declines a large amount. These are the people for whom the quantity and the quality of food has suffered because of an inability to, um, to make the household food budget stretch. So SNAP is very effective at allowing people to afford adequate food. So the question is, SNAP was designed to support food security. Everybody agrees that it does that well. Does it also support health? So here's a study that we did um, about six years ago now where we looked at every hospitalization in the state of California over a 10-year time period for low blood sugar. Now how do people get admitted to the hospital for low blood sugar? It happens almost entirely among people with diabetes, and it happens almost entirely among people with diabetes who have had some insult to their system, uh, That's some other physiologic insult. They have a urinary tract infection, they have a heart attack, uh, or something else is going wrong and their blood sugar gets out of whack and they end up with a very low blood sugar. The most severe of these low blood sugar reactions need to be treated in the hospital. The vast majority of low blood sugar reactions are treated at home or in the the clinic. So um, what we said to ourselves from our clinical experience is we know people are running out of money for food at the end of the month. We see lines at soup kitchens, free dining rooms, and food pantries get much, um, much longer at the end of the month. We know that big box stores uh, and other retailers have a habit of increasing um, food prices at the beginning of the month when SNAP benefits become get loaded onto the cards because they know there will be a big rush of people with a very high demand uh, for food. So we know this happens. So what we speculated was if you were taking your standard diabetes medication dose but you stopped eating as much, you would be at higher risk for a low blood sugar event And if it were severe enough to get you hospitalized, maybe we could see this in the data. What you see in this green line here is your risk of being hospitalized in the state of California by the day of the month, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and 31st day of the month. What you see in the red line is the risk of hospital admission for low blood sugar for the people who live in the lowest income zip codes in the state. And you see it every day of your month, the risk of being admitted with low blood sugar is higher than the general population. This, we might say, is the general impact of poverty. But what you see at the end of the month is a 27% increase in low blood sugar admissions in California, only among the low-income population compared to the first week of the month. And this, we say, is one of the immediate health impacts related to food insecurity. Uh, And so... This is important because people will speculate that none of the health impacts of food insecurity are likely to be seen for years or decades. And while that is true in many cases, the development of obesity or diabetes or heart failure will take years or decades, some health impacts of food insecurity at least can be seen over a matter of days or weeks. And so can SNAP make a difference? So this is... Um, an opportunity for us to use what we call a natural experiment, which is something that's going on otherwise in the world that allows us to capture something different in the data that we otherwise wouldn't be able to see. And in this case, the natural experiment was the passage of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act during the Obama administration, meant to stimulate the economy. And from um, in May of 2009, SNAP benefits had a substantial but temporary quite dramatic increase in benefit levels you can see the benefit levels here uh, that you have this dramatic increase in benefit levels and then it and then it Expired in October of 2013. And so we asked ourselves, first of all, can we see this pattern of the increase at the end of month in low blood sugar events in a different data set, you always have to repeat? And if we can, does the pattern look the same between in this period as it did in this period when SNAP benefits were higher? And this is what we found. We found, again, an increase in risk of low blood sugar events during this period And during this period of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the increase in low blood sugar events at the end of the month disappeared. No longer there. SNAP benefits were adequately protective in this new population of commercially insured adults uh, that we could no longer find that end-of-the-month increase in low blood sugar events. And if we count up the number of low blood sugar events that we would have anticipated based on what we saw here and multiplied them uh, by the cost of those events, we come to estimate that $54 million in health care costs just for those low blood sugar hospitalizations were averted because of the temporary increase in SNAP benefits. So, remember I said remember that $1,800 because you're gonna start wondering to your the, the $1,800 in additional healthcare expenditures that a person living in a food insecure household has on average compared to someone living in a food secure household. That $1,800 we may now ask, well, if you're enrolled in SNAP, how much does that change that $1,800 differential? And you'll see here very similar data, but looking now not whether you're food insecure or not food insecure, but whether you're enrolled in SNAP or eligible for SNAP but not enrolled. And what we see here is if you are enrolled in SNAP, your health care expenditures are about $1,400 less than they are if you are eligible for SNAP but not enrolled. Now, it's a little bit comparing apples and oranges, so we can't exactly say that the $1,400 is you know, 80% of the $1,800, and we can save 80% of health care expenditures, but it gives us a good idea that SNAP enrollment has a substantial impact on reducing health care expenditures. So you may ask yourself, why is that? Is, is it all because of dietary intake? And um, although it's easy to think that, I think there's a little, it's a little bit more complex and other things are going on. Uh, this, um, this graph shows you the um, extent to which people enrolled in SNAP report uh, different health than people not enrolled in SNAP. So you can see that people enrolled in SNAP are 10% more likely to report they're in excellent health, 4% more likely to report they're in very good health, and much less likely to report that they're in good, fair, or poor health. The important part of this is that people who encounter the healthcare system often get access to resources that support them in enrolling in SNAP. And what that means is that a more ill and a more frail population tend to enroll in SNAP. And so the question is, why then do people who are enrolled in SNAP feel that their health is better? Maybe it's that SNAP is actually doing something to help people become healthier. And, Here, again, I said um, a lot of these health impacts play out not over months, but mostly over years. This is wonderful data done by a researcher at UC Berkeley named Taylor A. Hoynes, who looked at the rollout of the SNAP program in the 1970s, and then followed children for decades to see what happened to them. And what she saw was that children who lived in counties where SNAP was available, even starting when they were in utero, if the county had SNAP benefits available, those children were healthier at birth, they were less likely to develop metabolic syndrome, obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol. They were more likely to reach their educational and academic potential They were more likely to graduate from high school, for example, and they were more likely to become economically self-sufficient as adults, meaning that their chances of needing government benefits in the future were remarkably, were substantially less. So a snap investment in early childhood has great impacts on health in the long term, I want to just emphasize that reaching your educational and academic potential and becoming economically self-sufficient from a public health perspective is one of the most important ways in which we keep people healthy. There's also been a lot of data um, recently about SNAP and other outcomes. I offer you just a couple of examples here. Uh, One is on SNAP and pregnancy outcomes. 20% of SNAP recipients are women of childbearing age. Women who are enrolled in SNAP are less likely to need to go to the emergency room for a pregnancy-related illness. And this is, I think, one of the most compelling stories um, of the last two years in this work. This data shows you how much your monthly SNAP benefits benefit is against the probability of needing to visit the emergency room for something related to your pregnancy. And what you see, again, is a, this profound association between your SNAP benefits and improvement in health care utilization. As your SNAP Benefit increases, your chances of needing to go to the ER go down. This is particularly interesting because these households that are getting really high benefits, six hundred and seventy-five dollars per month, these households tend to be the most vulnerable households, right? The poorest households, the households with the greatest number of children in them, and so we would, and and therefore probably the greatest number of births of the mother already. The mother's likely older, so more likely to have pregnancy complications. So by every we would expect these households to have the highest need for emergency room care, and yet we see them have the lowest need for emergency room care. Similar studies on child uh, visits for asthma to the emergency room. Here, the mechanism is probably by um, what we call cost-related medication non-adherence, which is uh, not taking your medications because they're too expensive. We know that childhood asthma is very sensitive to regular use of your asthma medications, and so when people don't have access to their medications, their risk of having an exacerbation goes up. Again, the risk goes up considerably um, depending on your benefit level is highly associated, again, with your risk for having an emergency room visit. Same with visits to the emergency room for high blood pressure, which we also think is probably related to the cost of medications. Uh, In fact, if we look among older adults, um, if people are enrolled in SNAP, it largely mitigates this problem. So again, we're looking at what's called cost-related medication non-adherence, not taking your medications because it's not affordable for you. If we look among food food insecure older adults, people who are enrolled in SNAP are significantly less likely to have cost-related medication non-adherence than people who are eligible for SNAP but not enrolled suggesting that SNAP really helps households to afford medications. Uh, and a similar um, study to one I showed you before, but older adults enrolled in SNAP compared to those not enrolled in SNAP are much less likely to enter a nursing home, so they're much more likely to stay in the community for longer. Uh, if they are admitted to a nursing home, it's for less time. They're much less likely to be admitted to the hospital, and if they are admitted, it's for less time, and they're also less likely to use the emergency room. And so maybe it's not so surprising that healthcare expenditures go down with SNAP and Enrollment. This study looks at what happened in the state of Massachusetts again during the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. So, SNAP benefits went up. What happened to the to Medicaid expenditures in that state? And you can see in the pre-ARRA period, the the um, healthcare expenditures were increasing very dramatically. Then during that ARRA period, you can see the slope. Level out a little bit, Medicaid expenditures went, uh, increased much less rapidly, and then as soon as the, ex- the um, ARRA expired, the slope of increase went right back up to where it was. Okay, so I hope that I have convinced you that SNAP can help address this problem, and so then you might say to yourself, well, what, what's going on with SNAP now, and are we going to be able to use SNAP as one mechanism to invest in the health of the population? And so I'm going to suggest, I'm going to give you just a few bullet points on four proposals within uh, the SNAP program, uh, and I can't tell you exactly what impact this is going to have on health, um, but I will tell you the, sort of the punchline now, which is that none of these are going to be good for the population health. So there's four things, all of which you may have been reading about in the newspapers because people are very interested in these issues right now. Categorical eligibility, work requirements, capping deductions for utilities, and the public charge issue. Now, I will caveat this by saying that um, these rules are extraordinarily complex And there is some suggestion that they are intentionally complex so that we can't understand them. But I'm going to do my best to make them as simple as possible. It's very difficult to push against things that are too complex for us to even understand. But I'm going to give you sort of the broad brush strokes um, and make a few... Generalizations, um, so that I don't get too wonky on you. Although I'm happy to get wonky if anybody wants to ask wonky questions about these changes. The first is called categorical eligibility. Categorical eligibility basically means that if you are already, if you are eligible for one social service program and those eligibility criteria are stricter than SNAP, then we'll just automatically enroll you in SNAP. You don't have to go through a separate process in a separate office. We'll just say if you're already, for example, in social, getting Social Security, we know you're eligible for SNAP anyway so we'll just enroll you. If you're already getting TANF, that TANF is what used to be called welfare, we'll just enroll you in SNAP. Or if you're in Medicaid, we'll just enroll you in SNAP because SNAP has looser eligibility criteria than these others. And through this mechanism many, many people were able to enroll in SNAP without the bureaucratic need to go down to a different office, wait in line, prove their income, and prove all of the other things that they've, they've just proved at the Medicaid office. The the proposal is that these programs would no longer be able to link themselves and and qualifying for one program would no longer automatically qualify you for SNAP benefits. The second that we've been talking about a lot, even today in the context of the coronavirus, uh, is about work requirements. Now, work requirements are applicable only to what we call a-bods or able-bodied adults, what, what the government assumes is somebody who's able to work without dependents, not taking care of children or frail older adults or, or disabled people in their household. And basically what it says is that you can only get benefits for three months out of every three-year period unless you are working or you're enrolled as a student or you are volunteering or you're in a job training program. And if you can't prove that you're doing any of those things, then we won't give you any SNAP benefits. As a matter of fact, um, this went into effect in San Francisco County in, on September 1st of 2018, so we are already subject to work requirements in this county. The um, Farm Bill that was passed in 2018 had this work requirement proposal in it, and Congress did not approve it. However... The uh, USDA has found a way to do this same thing administratively rather than legislatively. So even though Congress says no to this proposal, the USDA has found a way to implement it without congressional approval. We can talk about um, why that is afterwards if people are interested. Just um, in terms of context for today, I will tell you that one of the proposals to respond to coronavirus today has been to reinstitute the... Um, the. Um, to, to take away, I'll just say to take away the work requirement rule so that people know, would now have access to SNAP benefits on an ongoing basis. Now, this makes me actually um, want to say one other thing in the context of coronavirus, which is that SNAP is what the economists call countercyclical, which really means that it is able to respond very quickly to an economic downturn. And in fact, it's extraordinarily successful. And why is that? people become eligible for SNAP when their income falls. We very quickly get them enrolled in SNAP, and the federal government has a very quick, streamlined, and efficient way to push money immediately into local communities, and that money is then spent. It's not saved. It's spent in local communities at grocery stores and retailers immediately, and so it provides a massive economic stimulus. This is why programs like the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act happen. It's also why people enrolling in SNAP in the next few weeks as um, as coronavirus has more of an economic impact will help to support the economy. And it is also why legislators have tried to pull back on all of these proposals just in the last couple of days to allow SNAP to to have this countercyclical effect that supports the economy. The things you didn't realize you were going to learn tonight when you were talking about health. Utility deduction. So another really complicated one. Basically, what you need to know about this one is that the formula for calculating how much benefits you need from SNAP was developed based on data from the 1960s. And in the 1960s, the average household in the United States spent 30% of their entire household income on food. And so... Basically, the the way the calculation works even today is you go into the SNAP office, you tell them how much your household income is, they have a calculation for how much they think you should be spending on food as as a four-person household or a six-person household, and then they say, okay, you put in 30% of your income and we'll cover the rest of the gap. The problem is that putting in 30% of your income on food is an extraordinary amount of food in today's society. And people can't realistically put, in many cases, 30% of their household income into food. One of the reasons, one of the ways states have tried to address this massive problem that we're still using a 1960s calculation is by having income deductions. One of them is utilities. And again, um, capping these income deductions has been done through regulatory efforts, not legislative efforts. So even though Congress hasn't approved these, they found a way to do it anyway. And I mention this because hunger and food insecurity is one of these few issues that are often very Bipartisan Republicans and Democrats agree on feeding people who are hungry, um, but we are finding a lot of regulatory efforts to roll this back. Okay, public charge. I'm sure that you guys have heard a lot about public charge, but um, for those of you who don't know the details of it, public charge has actually been a part of federal immigration law for decades. It applies only to people who are applying for a visa to um, come to the United States, or uh, a green card that makes you a lawful permanent resident. Not, in fact, to become a citizen, although there's so much confusion around this, and I'll show you this in a minute, that it has been misinterpreted and um, been allowed to scare a Huge population of people for whom it doesn't really um, probably have an impact. So it does not apply to green card holders that are applying to become U.S. citizens. And basically what the public charge rule said is if you are reliant on certain government benefits that were cash transfers, you, it would be a ding against you in your ability to get your green card. And traditionally, the only cash transfers that counted were Social Security, TANF, welfare, and long-term institutional care. And the new public charge rule has changed it so that anybody who gets any government support, even if they're eligible for these programs, would be at... Um, would be much less likely to be granted a green card. And that includes anybody who uses SNAP, anybody who enrolls in Medicaid or Medicare or Section 8 housing, which are housing vouchers. Any of these things can be used as a ding against you and make it less likely that you'll be able to get a green card. Um, And this, uh, the Supreme Court just ruled this constitutional, and this went into effect just now on February 24th. So who is this impacting? Well, first of all, it's impacting people who aren't actually, who don't actually have a reason to be impacted. So these are the number of people who have asked to disenroll in federal nutrition programs because of the chilling effect and these are the people who have non-citizen family members and so these people might reasonably be infected 20% disenrollment these people are all permanent resident these are households where everyone is a permanent resident already so it shouldn't impact it and yet the fear around it has caused massive disenrollment and these people are all citizens and again 9.3% of these households also are disenrolling from the programs so lots of And and the more you've heard about the program, the more likely you are to disenroll. So a third of people who've learned a lot about the public charge issue have disenrolled. 15% of those have heard a little bit about it, or 13% of those who've heard a little bit about it, and 6% of people who've heard nothing about public charge. The problem is this is disproportionately um, impacting the people who have incomes below 200% of the federal poverty line. It's disproportionately impacting Latino households, and it's disproportionately impacting households with children. So the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. And if you take these four together... Uh, and you look at them as a package, the uh, Urban Institute very recently released a report estimating the impact about 3.7 million participants will lose federal nutrition program benefits, 2.2 million households will, will see their benefits drop by more than $127 per month, about a million kids will lose access to school meals because of this categorical eligibility change, and about a million more people would be food insecure. So, we have learned through a decade of this research that food insecurity and health are tightly connected and it has both short-term and long-term implications for your health. We know that SNAP not only reduces food insecurity but also mitigates the health impacts of food insecurity. And we can speculate that these proposed reductions in SNAP benefits are likely to cause poor health and increased health care expenditures. And really what that means for the health care system is that a dollar that isn't spent on SNAP benefits is not a dollar saved by by the federal government. Much of that dollar is just put out through Medicaid and Medicare rather, through, rather than through the SNAP program. And so um, I would contend that this is a really uh, sort of ridiculous way to be spending our resources. Um, with that, I um, will ask if there are any questions. Who are the champions for this issue in Congress? Um, th- that's a great question. Um, as I said, hunger issues are often bipartisan, not always, um, the the um, champions tend to be uh, Democrats in general who support a strong a stronger social safety net. And Republicans who have um, the, uh, fo- the agricultural industry as important stakeholders in their constituencies. And these are the groups that often come together to co sponsor many of these anti hunger uh, food insecurity reduction programs. Yeah. So the question is about food insecurity and self medication. It's a great question. Let me start, well, let me give you two points of data. The first is around food insecurity and tobacco use. One of the food insecure households are much, much more likely to have a smoker in the household, and we know that smoking takes up a lot of the household budget. But one of the things that we also know about smoking is that uh, smoking substantially blunts your appetite. And so one of the ways that people cope with not having enough food in the household is to smoke, and so there is a substantial self-medication component there. Uh, it also makes it very challenging to support people living in food-insecure households to stop smoking because it's such a powerful, you know, it, it makes you less anxious, and food insecurity makes people anxious. It makes you less hungry, and food-insecure people are really hungry. The second thing I'll tell you is from a global perspective, we know from a um, Well, and this is related to smoking, we know in a global perspective that having anyone in the household who smokes is associated with stunting among the children. And why is that? It's because it takes away so much from the household food budget. The relationships between food insecurity and illicit drug use, alcohol use, and tobacco use, all of those are used as self-medication very clearly. Now, I will say one other thing, though, about selling SNAP benefits. It is An uncommon, it it doesn't happen commonly, but it does happen. And one of the reasons that people um, talk about it happening is because our social service um, benefits in this country no longer, for the most part, include any cash. And so there is no way for a household that's only getting benefits, which might be a Section 8 housing voucher, it may be a child care voucher, it may be SNAP benefits. When you piece all all of these programs together, households still have no cash. There's a wonderful... book um, published in the last couple of years called um, uh, America on $2 a day. And $2 a day is the dollar value by which internationally we say that people are living in extreme po- poverty. And yet, even in the United States, there are many, many, many people who, are, who have less than $2 a day in cash. Uh, and so that's really used generally the motivator um, for selling your SNAP benefits to get a little cash. You know, when we think of all of these different programs available to low-income populations in isolation, we think of sort of their individual capacity to make a difference on health. The truth of the matter is... Um, how can we support food security in households in the U.S.? Well, we can give people money for food through SNAP, but there's also really good evidence that no matter how you get additional money into a low-income household, it supports food security. So Medicaid expansion supports food security because you can divert money from your health care budget to your food budget. Section 8 housing vouchers reduce food insecurity because you divert money from housing to food. Any way that you, you know increases in minimum wage, according to some economists, Controversial again, reduces food insecurity because you have more household income coming in. It doesn't really matter at the household level how you bring that money in. Uh, and when we're talking about trade offs between SNAP and Medicaid, those same principles come into effect. There are some very good articles now showing that um, states that expanded Medicaid had lower food insecurity rates than would have been predicted uh, compared to states that did not expand Medicaid. So with that, thank you guys for braving the pandemic to come here. To those of you in the room and to those of you online, thank you for sticking with us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.